appreciate everyone being here tonight. Kind of a kind of a fall Wednesday. Very much fall weather here on the last Wednesday of September. Drop into the last quarter of the year, starting Friday. I won't announce how many days till Christmas. Not that I know how many days till Christmas, but uh, next week I'll be out of town. Phil has graciously agreed to take the class. I have not done him much of a favor with a lot of notes and a lot of things to go. I've said, here's the books, <laughs> here's the chapters, lots of luck. So, um, so everyone be patient with Phil next week, support him. But again, it's a very important topic. I think that ne next week is, is probably one of the more important classes. Uh, not to put any pressure on Phil, but it's the pinnacle of the class. Yeah, no, it's uh, really, it's going to be a follow-up of what Eddie talked about last Sunday. Uh, it's, it's just very nice how his lesson is tying in, but it'll be based on kinship, um, family. So how do we see kinship in the Jewish culture? How do we see it in the New Testament? And then, you know, what does that mean for us? So uh, again, I think it's a very important concept, one that as we in the church really have not emphasized or, or took, taken the time, I think, to study and say, how, what does that really mean for us? So, uh, so next week, I'm trying to set the bar really high for Phil. Uh, we'll have that lesson on kinship, and then we'll be down to about three more lessons uh, for this. Um, Let's just go ahead and start with a prayer, if we could. Father, we thank you for, again, the safe journey you've given us. We bless you for who you are, how you've provided for the fall weather that we are having, and just as it uh, signifies a change in seasons for us. We thank you for the provisions and through Christ the hope of heaven that we have. We ask that you bless our class this evening and that you might be honored through it. And we ask this through our Savior. Amen. So again, continuing the topic of our scriptures, Jewish. We recognize that when we pick up our Bibles, even though it is in English, uh, it is a Jewish book. It is written by Jewish authors from a Jewish culture. So as we read through our scripture, we are in a cross-cultural experience, much as when we go to Guatemala or Zambia or any other uh, country, maybe even like New York. It's a very cross-cultural experience. They do things differently. So what we've been trying to do is say, let's try to understand some of their culture and see if that can give some more color to the scripture that we're reading, maybe allow us to have our faith a little bit deeper. In no way have we been trying to say that our culture is wrong and their culture is better. We are not saying that you have to learn Hebrew in order to understand the Bible. We're not saying that we have to change how we've understood grace or faith. But what we've tried to do is say, you know, there is, there, there's some broader concepts, some broader pictures that help us maybe fill in the gaps or maybe help us understand some of the passages that we read. So that's really been the main, the main focus. Uh, tonight we're going to look at purity and pollution. Uh, the goals of the class tonight is maybe to better understand the purity codes of the Jews and to understand maybe how they relate to our lives today. So that's the overall goal. Last week we were looking at um, some of the Hebrew thought. And again, we're painting with kind of broad strokes. 
And when we say Hebrew thought, we're really kind of saying this is what it looks like from Scripture as we read through the Hebrew Scripture. These are some commonalities that we see. These are some things that we see coming out. First, we see that there is a biblical paradox where we hold truths that seem to be in contradiction, in balance. We saw in Exodus that Scripture says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then a few moments later, we see what? God hardened his heart. And Scripture makes no effort to try to reconcile those. Well, which was it? We, in our Greek way of thinking, we want to reconcile it. We want to say, um, you know, God hardened his heart and that caused Pharaoh. So we try to, to bring these together and let one win. When Scripture simply just lays it out there and says, this is it. We see this in, um, in God's sovereignty and man's free will. Scripture does not try to reconcile those. Simply says what? God is sovereign. He is king. He, he rules all. And what do we see? You have a choice. Moses, when talking to the children of Israel, said, look, God's commands aren't that far away. They're not impossible to obey. But you've got a choice. Now, what choice would God like you to make? He'd like you to choose life. But if you want to choose death, here's what's going to happen. So scripture just lays it out there. God is sovereign, man has a choice, and just holds those in tension. And it's really hard for us to do that. We, we like to try to, to reason it out and to see which one's above the other. And I think the challenge for us then is no, let's just, we can just let it be in tension and be okay with that. Uh, we saw that uh, for our method normally, we have in a Greek method is a step logic. We go from problem A to problem B to problem C. We like to do things chronologically. If we were to describe our day, we would normally start with breakfast, go to lunch, then to dinner. We, would, it's just, we don't think about it. That's just how we do it. Whereas the Hebrew thought is more a block logic or a functional logic. So in describing their day, it might be more, uh, here's my eating activities, here's my reading activities, here's my traveling activities. And it's not chronological. What does that mean for us? Well, when we read certain passages, more specifically the Gospels, and if the Gospels were not written in a chronological fashion, and we try to put it in a chronological order, now all of a sudden we've got these discrepancies that we try to reason out. And what we said was, you know, the Gospels weren't written to be harmonized. Mark and Matthew didn't get together and say, hey, you know, when did this happen? I may need to make sure we get our facts straight. They weren't worried about their facts getting straight. They were telling a story. And if an event made more sense in Matthew's version to put it here and Mark, to put it here, they're telling a story. And it's okay for us to read a harmony of the Gospels. It helps us put Jesus' life into this one perspective. As long as we recognize that Matthew and Mark pretty much were not written in a chronological fashion. We saw that Matthew was probably written as a chiasm, where we have a set of uh, his birth and death, and then we have a set of teachings, and then a set of miracles, and down in, in the middle we had a set of parables. So it worked in and back out with no real intent 
of being in a chronological fashion. So when we read our Harmony of the Gospels, we recognize there's some differences, and that's okay. Uh, we don't need to try to explain was there one cleansing of the temple or two. Uh, we just, John put his at the beginning for a theological reason. He's telling a story about Jesus. He's setting up Jesus as Messiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, more at the end. Was there one or two cleansings? I, I'm not going to answer that. I don't know. But that's, that's kind of what we're talking about there. We did talk about a chiasm. And when we read the flood account, we see certain points being made. And, and um, especially with the numerology, the numbers 7, 40, and 150. So as we read it, we see the number 7, then we see the number um, 40, and then the number 150, and then it comes back out. And then the middle was what? This was an open book test, or maybe on memory. What was the middle of the flood story, the point of the flood story? Hopefully you remember. If that's not a hint, we're in... I mean, God remembered Noah. Yeah, we didn't remember Noah, but God did. That's good. So the, if we look at the, the flood story, and we see the certain events, the middle of the flood story is God remembered Noah. That's the point. So the authors used a chiasm in order to make their point. Why? Well, because they didn't have bold text. They didn't have a highlighter. They didn't have sentences. Okay? There was no punctuation. It's just Hebrew. Start on the right side, work to the left, go back to the next line, and just margin to margin. So this was their way in a literary and in a oral culture to make a point. Recognize most of what they're hearing is they can hear. We can hear when things are start getting repeated. And that helps us then remember the story. Um, and a simple tip for us as we read through scripture is we look for repeated words. We read, we see something, and then a, a few moments later and a few verses later, we see this word repeated or this phrase repeated. And we go, huh, wait a minute. I wonder if those are bookends. And then we can start working our way in. Let's take an example. Um, from John, yet a time is coming. This is Jesus talking again, Samaritan woman, right? We're familiar with the story. Time is coming, now has come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What do I hear repeated? In spirit and in truth. That's that in the beginning? Yeah. What does it end with? In spirit and in truth. I wonder if those are bookends. So I can look at that and I say, huh, I see worship in spirit and truth. And if I work my way in, I see him talking about worshipers. And then in the middle, I have what? God is spirit. What was the main point Jesus was making? God is spirit. And then the bookends are, we're going to worship in spirit and truth. That's a chiasm. So now as we read through the Psalms and through some of the sayings of Jesus, don't see it a whole lot that I've noticed in the letters. But it is very prominent, Old Testament and Gospels. Uh, we see that a whole lot in those, in those writings. So one more thing we wanted to, I wanted to talk about as far as the literary structure of Scripture is that of parallelism. We see this a whole lot in the Old Testament, okay? especially Psalms and Proverbs. So we have different kinds of parallelism. One would be called a synonymous parallelism. That's where two... Uh, Two sentences 
are in essence stating the same thing and the second statement in essence illuminates or helps us understand the first statement. So as we look at this one in Psalm uh, 91.1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So he's, he's saying the same thing but using different terms. So what we see is that dwelling is compared to resting. That shelter is compared to shadow, almighty and most high. Those are compared, so those are synonyms. But it helps me understand what what does the writer mean by dwelling? Well, he's meaning resting. So now as we read through the Psalms, what we can start seeing with these synonymous parallelisms and maybe start understanding a little more of what the author is saying. Another one, uh, Psalm 91.4, again, the same psalm. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So what do we have? We have the concept of covering, and of refuge, and of faithfulness. So what is the author telling us about faithfulness? It's refuge. It's God covering us. And again, we see feathers and wings being compared also to a shield and a rampart. So again, protection. Uh, so I can, um, I can rest in the Almighty because I know he's protecting. And we have these images that are being shown to help us understand that. We also have, um, well, I'd sure like Phil to pronounce this word, antithetic, word of the day means against. See, mine aren't fancy like his. I've I've just got this little stuff here. Ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value, but righteousness delivers from death. We have two statements that are set against each other. And, And so we're comparing two things, and one is to kind of show here's the opposite. And especially if you look through Proverbs 10, 11, 12, kind of those three chapters there, it's, it's three chapters in every verse. It's kind of like, here's a statement, but here's another statement. So these are parallelisms, but they're set against each other so that you have this strong contrast. We have some parallelism that's really in form only. It's just two sentences. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Uh, the way it's written, just two lines but there's really no, it's just kind of feels like more like one thought. And then we have a synthetic parallelism where it builds up or puts together. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So we are guarding our heart. Why? Because everything is flowing from our heart. So we've got one sentence and then the next part of the sentence is expanding and building upon that. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. So again, the second line is expanding upon the first line and, and in essence making, getting it to be built up. We have emblematic parallelism in which a symbol or a metaphor is being used. Again, in the psalm, Psalm 42.1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. So what's the author trying to do? He's trying to take something from nature. Do I understand how a deer can pant for water? Yeah, I can understand that. I understand what he's saying there. Okay, that's like 
what your soul should be doing for God. So he's giving us that comparison and trying to illustrate it for us. Again, as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. That one we can figure out, right? It doesn't take much to understand a pig's snout and that that's not uh, something desirable that a woman should have is without, with that lacking discretion. So again, very graphic in how it's portraying it, but it gets the point across uh, for us on that. Also in the Old Testament, we have an acrostic. So here is an acrostic. Jesus is Lord is the title. The poem is, just when everything seemed hopeless, God unselfishly sacrificed his son. In sacrificing his son, he redeemed us, life from death, order from chaos, and returned a kingdom to his dearly beloved. What's the acrostic in this? Does, does anybody see the acrostic? Yeah, so if we look at it, what's the first letter of every sentence spell? Jesus is Lord. That's an acrostic. It's pretty difficult to translate an acrostic when you think about coming from Hebrew to English. Um, so the translator, we have to ask, which is more important, style or substance? Style is the acrostic. Substance is the exact words. Okay? Which is it? Which, which should win? In all of our versions, substance wins. Just because it's, it's just so hard to translate an acrostic. But the thing is, the style is a part of the substance. That's a part of what the writer or the author was trying to get across. Just like the poem, Jesus is Lord. That, that's, that first letter in every sentence kind of made the poem. Let's give an example. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. We understand that, right? Well, if we look at that from our English 21st century America, I'm going, okay, what's an Alpha and an Omega? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't use that in my normal conversation. The only way I'm going to know that is when somebody who is learned in Greek explains to me that alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Otherwise, in my normal English language, I have no clue. So what did the translators do? They translated based on substance. That's what the Greek version says, alpha and omega. What if I translated on style? Jesus is the A and the Z. Now, do we understand that? We understand that, because why? That's our alphabet. What's he saying when we say something is from A to Z? It's complete. Jesus is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. So, uh, so that's the, the kind of the issue with an acrostic, is we lose some of the style of what it's saying uh, in, in how it's translated. Psalm 25, for the most part, is an acrostic. So here is our English version of it. So if we were to open up, I think New International maybe, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let my enemies triumph over me. Psalm we're familiar with. Um, 
Do we see an acrostic in that? No, we don't. But if we, it was written like this, and I know the font's pretty small there to get it on, do we see any pattern in this translation of Psalm 25? That's what the author wrote. So that's, that's really what we would be seeing in Psalm 25 if we understood Hebrew and we're reading from Hebrew. We would look at that and we go, oh, that's pretty cool. He's using every letter of the alphabet. Now, is that a pretty good memory? Can I remember something if it's A, B, C, D? Well, sure, that helps, that helps memory. That's one of the reasons they did that. In the Psalms, we have these are, uh, these are some of the acrostics. Uh, Psalm 111, 112 kind of go together. Um, look at, you know, Psalm 34, each Hebrew consonant covers one verse. Psalm 37, two verses. Psalm 119 is an acrostic. Eight verses, every eight verses covers one Hebrew consonant. Think about that. Uh, Psalm 145. Uh, there's other acrostics in uh, the Old Testament. Lamentation 1 through 4. Chapters 1 and 2 cover certain verses. When we read in Proverbs the story or, or the account of the wise woman, the virtuous woman, verses 10 through 31, and all of the accounts of the virtuous woman, that's in a Hebrew acrostic. Every one of those sentences goes through each. He starts at A and goes to Z. In Hebrew, Aleph to Tov. So A to T, basically. So what's he saying about this particular woman? Complete. And, and we miss that, right? Because we don't see that. So in some of your versions, when you look at Psalm 119, you'll see these subgroup headings in your versions. And what that's meant to tell you is that these are the Greek letters that these verses start with, or Greek letters, sorry, Hebrew letters that these verses start with. So it starts with Aleph, goes to Beth, goes to Gimel. And you're going to see that 22 times as it works its way through the psalm. Here would be uh, an attempt to translate based on style rather than substance. So again, if we see this translation, we kind of get it, don't we? First eight verses, I'll start with A. Next, I'll start with B. Next, I'll start with C. And as we look at that, that causes us then to contemplate. The author of this was saying that God's law is so complete that you know, I can get eight verses of the same letter that expounds God's law and my whole alphabet I can use to describe God's law and just the beauty of it. And unfortunately, we, we kind of miss some of that depth. Just It's just so hard to translate. Now, if I read this version, is that exactly what the, what the psalmist is saying? Is this a very great translation on substance? No, there's, there's a lot of liberty in, in this version, but it's con conveying the style of how Psalm 119 is written. Um, 
So that kind of wraps up the literary. Hopefully that helps us as we, we try to kind of read and understand um, some of the Hebrew literary. Eric. Say that again. <laughs> so I'll do that from A to Z, okay? Maybe actually maybe A to C. That's about all I can get to. Uh, so now we move into uh, purity and pollution. Kind of our, uh, that's where we'll spend the rest of our time now. As we look at this picture, what do we see? A nice pile of dirt. Is there anything wrong with that dirt? No, there's nothing wrong with that dirt. We look at that and at least those guys go, that's a nice pile of dirt. And nobody has typically any issues with this. Now then, some of you look at this and go, ah, we got a problem. Guys look at that and go, you're right. One shoe's tipped over. So most of us look at this and go, well, you know, that pile of dirt in the last picture's okay. This pile of dirt's just not so okay. And we want to what? We want to clean it up. Why? Well, because dirt on the carpet doesn't belong on the carpet. Dirt belongs outside. It doesn't belong inside. Is there anything morally wrong with dirt? No, dirt's dirt. But dirt has a place, and that place is outside, not inside. And that's why most of us, well, most of the ladies, will sweep up a pile of dirt once it hits the floor. And it's pretty quick, isn't it? We, I mean, how, ladies, how many times are you going to walk by this pile of dirt without either sweeping it up or graciously mentioning it to the other half in the... Graciously. You know, most of us don't flock to Leviticus for our daily reading. That's just not on, you know, like our top 80 of books of the Bible to read. Some of you will get that little bit of humor later on. Top 80? I didn't know there was 80. Why is it difficult for us to understand? Well, because we believe somewhat that the ritual law was fulfilled in Jesus and it no longer applies to us, so we really don't see an application for it. Uh, secondly, access for us to God is, is pretty much deregulated. We, we don't have these uh, rituals that we need to go before we come in here and worship God. There's no little pool of water that we cleanse ourselves in before coming in here to the auditorium. And access to God for us is not really hedged in by a standard of purity. We just come in. And that's okay. So purity codes are a way to identify what is proper for a certain place and time. Again, dirt's okay outside. Dirt's not okay inside. Most of us kind of hold to that particular value. Pollution is that which is out of place in regard to society and its notion of what is orderly and safe. When we think of pollution, most of us probably think in environmental terms. We think of what's coming out of a smokestack or what's along a riverbed or, or kind of what's on the street. We, we think of it environmentally. 
Uh, I would say is if we were to mention the word pollution, uh, I would guess nobody thinks personally of, of any actions that I do or anything about me that's pollution. So let's understand that as we're talking about pollution now, we're really not talking as much environmental as we are personal. Now, is our way of looking at pollution appropriate? Yes. Are the uh, grocery carts and the plastic bags and the water bottles along the stream bed, are they out of place? Yes. Do they belong there? No. That's pollution. But we're going to talk about pollution more in a personal sense. Purity is a way of drawing lines that gives definition to our world. Now, we, um, we don't use these terms, but we do operate with purity codes. Now, if I said, what's your purity codes? You'd be going, uh, what are you talking about? Then Nashville, we'd be talking about the milk from my grandfather's dairy. It was called purity. But purity for us is it's just not a term that's typically in our vocabulary. But we do operate with purity standards. We do have boundaries that we hold to near and dear. And those boundaries generally are around place, food, time, and people. Boundaries around place. Um, some of us will take off our shoes when we come home and put on indoor shoes to then walk around the house. Others will just come in and walk around the house. Different standards. Um, some of us will take our dirty clothes off and put them in the hamper. Others of us will take them off and that's where we drop them. No gender, no gender implied there. But that's, that's just how some of us are. With food, some of us will wash our hands before every meal. Some of us will, it's my past the ketchup, you know? Some of us, if a piece of food touches the table or falls onto the floor, throw that thing away. Others, maybe have a three-second rule. Maybe a five-second rule. Maybe, uh, was it jelly up or jelly down? Okay. Was it chocolate? Maybe I got a five-minute rule on that. Okay. We have those standards, right? Um, we, if somebody else touches a piece of food, some of us are going to go, no, thank you. Others will go, want a bite? We'll go, is it chocolate? Maybe so, right? Um, I was at a conference uh, several years ago. Uh, the hotel had, you know, the buffet breakfast, so I'd eat my breakfast. For some unknown reason, I wasn't thinking clearly, I left a piece of bacon on my plate. I, I agree, please don't judge, but that was just, I, I wasn't fully awake. So I set my tray on the return table. Another coworker came down, so I joined him while he ate. And I sat down, and I could see my tray, nobody touched it, you know, it was just sitting there. So as we got up to leave, we're walking by my plate, and I go, hey, somebody didn't finish their bacon. I grabbed it and put it in my mouth and ate it, and he, oh, you couldn't, how, you have no idea where it's, how could you, do? 
He was aghast. I thought he was going to be sick. (laughs) Clearly, I crossed his purity boundaries for food. Because for him, once that tray hit that table, it's gone. Uh, You know, I told him a little later on, I said, look, that was my bacon. I knew nobody touched it. He goes, but still, you know, for him, it was, boy, that was off limits on that part of the table. You know, once you set it there, it's unclean. So we have purity boundaries, right? We just don't call it that. Um, For time, you get a sales call during dinner time. Feel a little violated, right? It's like, wait a minute. This isn't time for a sales call. This is my dinner time. Don't you know that? Maybe calling somebody, we may think, you know, it's before 7 or after 7 or 8 or when, when is that boundary that it's okay to call somebody that I'm not too early or too late. You see the boundaries we're drawing? We just don't call them purity boundaries. But they are the boundaries that we operate in as a society. And each of us have kind of our own little set of boundaries and, um, and what, how we we've deal with them as far as people. Um, you know, if someone's walking down the street and they're not, and they're dressed in a very shabbily, some of us will will tend to move over a little. Why? Because we feel like that's there's a little bit out of place. I'm not judging right or wrong. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying that's just human life, right? We we tend to have certain boundaries in regards to these topics. Purity is concerned with ordering our world and making sense of that order in light of that order. Okay, so that's, that's what purity does. Purity tells us what and who belongs when and where. Okay, that's, that's the order that we're giving to our world here. Purity lets us know if order is being maintained and when something is out of place. And all cultures have a sense of purity and a sense of what is holy. Every culture does that. Um, You can see um, women with dirt floors and they will sweep their dirt floors to maintain that sense of order and that sense of cleanliness. So all cultures have these boundaries. Something that is holy is beyond the sphere of that which is common in every day. We recognize that. That is why it's holy. It's it's not common. It is set apart. And you cannot approach that which is holy while being polluted or defiled. And as I think about that and reflect on that, I'm going, I I don't know that we really have a strong sense that way. I don't know if anybody would disagree, but um, I don't know that, that that's real strong within our culture. In other cultures, that's very strong. Uh, you cannot approach the holy if there's any sort of pollution. Yeah, so that's, again, and, and I think some of us are familiar with that, is, is that you go into certain places, especially certain environments, there's a, a sense of what is appropriate. Jim? Jesus will remember when a ready sweatshirt and shorts and sandals at church. It's just not going to happen. Correct. I was... Um, 
Yeah, maybe dealing with that a little bit later, but, but it's brought up. But yeah, yes, there, are, there was a time to where for probably most of us, we had our Sunday go-to-meeting clubs, right? Uh, and you only wore those on Sunday, and you did. There was suit and tie most, you know, my, my growing up, you know, um, boy, Sunday mornings was pretty much suit and tie for most of the men, and uh, it was not jeans for the guys, uh, the young, you know, in the youth group. It was, your, you had your Sunday best you wore, uh, and that was the environment I grew up in. So that was a, a purity boundary and how that you dressed to go to church. Uh, that, that's kind of how it was for us. Jewish purity in Leviticus, again, everybody's favorite. Chapter 10, then the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can, what? Distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees of the Lord has given them through Moses. So we have a purity boundary set on Aaron and the priests, right? What purity boundary is that? Not drinking when they go before the temple. And what are they to distinguish between holy and common, between clean and unclean? That is not a parallelism. Right? That's not a synonymous parallelism. That's two different sets. So we're looking at that which is common versus that which is holy. That which is common um, or profane. Again, don't, don't think of that in a negative sense. Uh, we think if you're using profanity and that profane word kind of sounds like it, that's pretty bad. No, profane simply means common. Uh, again, not a negative term. It's a neutral term that identifies things that are in their ordinary spaces and accessible to humans. Most things are common. Some things, though, are holy. So holy is a marked term. That is where you, it's, a, it's, um, it's different from common. So if something is holy, now that has been marked and set apart from that which is common. Or, you know, or ordinary. So we have the two terms, common and holy. Common is the Kind of that's the natural state of most things. Holy is that which is marked or set apart. So now we have two other terms, clean and unclean. Clean is the neutral term. That's the state that most things are in. Most things are in a clean state. That is something that's in its proper place and in a normal state. As opposed to that, we have unclean. That's the marked term. That's telling us that this is different. This is now out of place. It's something that has crossed a boundary between what is clean. And now it has moved into this status of being unclean. So now we kind of know that as we look through Leviticus and we see terms like this, we're knowing that common and holy go together. Clean and unclean go together. The um, Typically... Typically, you were clean and common. That's kind of the, the broad category. Now, you could be common and unclean, right? If I touched a corpse. I'm still common. I'm not holy, but I'm still in the common area. But now I'm unclean. 
and I need to do something to now restore me back to that clean state. I could be unclean and common. Uh, So in that case, that would be like um, a graveyard. Graveyard was unclean because it had dead bodies, but it's common. Why? Because it's not holy. So that's why there. The temple is what? Clean and holy. That's why there were, there were purification rites in order to enter the temple because you did not want anything unclean coming into the temple to defile it. So the temple remained clean and it was also holy because it was set apart. Now the unclean and holy really is not something that happened. Uh, some may say the, the ashes of the red heifer would, might would fall into that category. It's, a, it's something that's dead. You've sacrificed the red heifer, but the ashes do make things holy. So that you could debate about that one. We're not spending much time on that. But just so that we understand, you've got these different phases you can be in, and that for most Israelites, they were either common and clean or common and unclean. So they were going through these various stages between clean and unclean. So within Leviticus, we have certain purity maps. What does a map do? If we look at a map, a map simply defines a boundary. If I look at the map of the United States, I see the boundary for Colorado. I see the boundary for Utah. It defines all the different states. Uh, If I look at a map of El Paso County, I see the boundary for Colorado Springs and the boundary for the county. So a map is simply something that's defining boundaries. And from that map, I can determine if I am inside of Colorado or outside of Colorado. A purity map is simply helping me define, am I inside the line that's clean? Am I outside the line that's clean? Leviticus provides this map for the Israelites. And pollution happens when you cross that boundary from clean to unclean. Now recognize it is not a moral action. When we're talking about clean and unclean, we are not talking about morality. Is there anything immoral about touching a dead body? No. That's a, it's a neutral action. And in, the, in, in their society, when a parent died, yeah, the, the, the family had to take care of the body. It had to touch the body to take care of, care of it. Was that wrong? No. Did it put those individuals in a state of being unclean? Yes, but not morally wrong. God established these boundaries predominantly so that Israel could identify itself apart from those nations around it. These were the markers that identified Israel. And because of these boundaries, God says, I'm setting these purity boundaries for you. We have our purity boundaries that we set ourselves. Again, as we react to the differences in how we treat dirt or food or time. So as we look through this, we're going to look through the different maps. And again, I want to repeat this. Being unclean was not something to be avoided. We tend to think that. We tend to think that, oh, they were trying to live their lives without being unclean. No, not at all. You could not do that. Um, you know, ladies, you, you, would be un, you were unclean 25% of your life. As you go through your monthly cycle, that, that period of time is unclean. 
So it's not saying these are things to be avoided. It's just a marker that says when you walk over to this unclean state, we now have to have a remedy for that, a purification, so that you now return to being clean. Those were the markers. So the maps of people. Israel was set apart and therefore considered holy. Other nations were defiled or identified as defiled in Leviticus 18. Uh, within Israel, there's, a, there's this hierarchy of holiness though. So Israel is considered holy. What does God say to them? You are to be holy. Why? Because I am holy. So there's this set-apartness for this nation of Israel. Now, most of the Israelites were just a part of this holy nation. But there were some, the Levites, who took care of the temple. So they had more stringent purity codes associated with their life. Then what did we have? We have the priests. Those were Levites descended from Aaron. They had more codes associated with them. Then what do we have? The high priest. The high priest now has more codes associated with him. So the high priest needed to uh, abstain from a lot of things in order to maintain his purity. That the common Israelite didn't have to. So we have this hierarchy amongst the Israelites in their purity. A map of spaces. Israel is the set-apart land. God said, I'm giving this land to Abraham. Jerusalem is in the center of that land. And the temple is then in the center of Jerusalem. So if you, you kind of see, we're working our way in as far as holiness. And then within the temple, we have the court of Gentiles, the court of women, the court of men, the court of the priests, and the holy of holies. Each space was restricted in who could get there and the purity requirements associated with it. Again, not saying that there was a right or wrong, not saying there was a better or worse. We're not saying that women were inferior to men because their court was outside and the men's were inside. Not at all. These were just the boundaries that God has drawn. We have a map of time. Right? God set apart time, didn't he? He said, here's a boundary. Six days you'll work. The seventh day is what? Seventh day set apart. It's holy. It's the Sabbath. You will not do any work on that. So God drew a boundary for the children of Israel. Very different from the nations around them. That's one of the, the boundaries that the other nations could immediately see. Are you setting apart the Sabbath? Yes, that means obviously you're an Israelite. We have the annual fe fe festivals. Passover, Day of Atonement, Feast of Booths. We just finished uh, Feast of Booths and Day of Atonement in September. So God marked off these, piece, these periods of time as being set apart or special. We have maps of food. Blood was, very, was uh, strictly prohibited for all Israelites. Why? Because God says the life is in the blood. Therefore, you will not eat anything that has the blood in it. That's why there is a specific killing process that the Jews undergo to where the, the throat is slit and then all of the blood is allowed to drain out. Because God has strictly prohibited the Israelites from consuming anything with blood. That's why it's a kosher killing. Or if you have a kosher uh, meat that's been killed in a certain way to make sure all the blood drains out. That was a boundary established by God. And look at the boundary that God says. God says, none of you may eat blood nor may any foreigner 
residing among you eat blood. He said, you know, this one's pretty serious. This one's a big one for me that not even somebody visiting would needs to abide, abide by this. And we see this even carried over into the New Testament. Um, again, you must not eat the blood of any creature. This was a very strong boundary that God uh, set up. Very quickly, we'll go through some of these. We had mammals. So what did it have to be? Divided hoof and chew the cud. So that's a lamb, right? Because that's a cow. They have the split hoof, chew the cud. What about the pig? Split hoof, doesn't chew the cud. What about a horse? Doesn't chew the cud, cud and doesn't have a split hoof. So God set up these markers for, these, for everybody to, uh, for them to know what food is clean, what food is unclean. For fish, it had to be fins and scales. Um, birds, so when, we, when he gets to some of these, he just says, okay, here's your unclean ones. Here's the ones you can't eat. Basically, it was scavengers, birds of prey and scavengers. Insects, flying and four-legged are unclean. Except for locusts, katydid, cricket, and grasshopper. So, next potluck, grasshoppers are okay. Chocolate-covered. And if it falls on the floor, it's chocolate, it's still good. <laughs> Creatures who move along the ground. So again, uh, animals with paws. You know, cats, dogs. Yay. Those were unclean. Why was a lobster unclean? Well, because it's an animal that lived in the sea but walked on the land. Kind of out of place. So God set up these dietary restrictions uh, to separate Israel from other nations. We have maps of the body. The body a lot of times is a symbol of wholeness. And anything emerging from the body is a sign of being unclean. Childbirth made in a woman unclean for seven days. For a male child, there was also 33 days before purification. For females, 66 days. It's not a status of being unsaved, illegal, immoral. It's simply a status of clean and unclean. Leviticus 13 moved on to skin conditions, rash, boils, sores, losing hair. To explain, if you have any of these, you are now unclean. Um, Leviticus 15, if you look at that, it's really written as a chiasm. We have what? We have men with an abnormal discharge, men with a normal discharge. What's in the middle? The marriage relationship. And now as we move back out, women with a normal Discharge, women with an abnormal discharge. Is there anything wrong? Is this saying it's sinful? No. This is a part of life. And usually for, for uh, the, the marital uh, relations, it was, you know what, And when evening comes, you will have a ritual bath to purify, and when evening comes, you're clean again. So there was a period of time of uncleanness, and then a purification right to become clean. And those are the boundaries that God has set. So when we get into the New Testament, this is where, to me, it becomes a little more cloudy. Because it seems like Jesus crosses many of the boundaries in regards to the purity laws. And, and I haven't fully worked this one out yet, so I'm kind of still in process on this one. Because I see this and I go, you know, Jesus said he came to properly interpret Torah the first five books of the Old Testament including Leviticus so Jesus came and he said I want to properly interpret 
these purity boundaries, those would be included in that. And recognize that for the Jews, there was no difference between violating a purity law and a moral law. Those were both violations of the law. We, we kind of make them one kind of more serious than the other. Not for them. It was the same law. And if, I, and if I broke some of those purity, especially intentionally, then I had to sacrifice for that. So Jesus is engaging in some of these practices that seem to be not having regard for the purity laws. But then we have to understand this. Was it the intent to not cross from clean into unclean? Was that the intent of the laws, that you should stay clean all the time? No. I mean, ladies, you, you have no choice. Um, if my parent dies, I'm, I'm going to take care of that parent. I, my um, child is sick. I want to take care of my child. So it was not the intent of the law to discourage going from clean to unclean was simply a marker and when I went to unclean I now have a prescribed remedy in order to return to being in a state of clean. So as Jesus is touching a leper or is touching a dead person we're thinking oh he's just disregarding the purity laws. No he's, he's really not because the authors don't tell us what did Jesus do afterwards. We really don't see anything because that really wasn't the point. And Jesus doesn't say much about it either. So the point is not, oh, Jesus touched a dead body and got away with it. Oh, Jesus saying, I'm not afraid. And uh, I believe he, he would then have gone through the purification rites as prescribed. Um, we see, uh, again, Matthew and again, this is one where, where, where it's probably the most one we have to struggle with the most. Um, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, this is what defiles them. He was talking about ritual washing. So the Pharisees had a ritual washing. They were obsessed with their hand cleaning. And it was not to clean their hands. It was just a ritual washing of the hands. And if you didn't do that, you're eating with unclean hands. That was not prescribed in Torah. It was just a, a, a ritual that they had come up with. And he said, you know what, their disciples, Jesus' disciples wasn't following that, so they were on the upset side. And then Jesus kind of gives this, what goes in does not defile, but what comes out of the mouth. Now, last week we talked about what? There are certain, this not but phraseology that we see a lot in the New Testament. We said sometimes it's what? Exclusionary. Other times, it's a comparison of significance. Again, we used Ananias and Sapphira. You have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. Did they lie to man? Yes, right to their face. More importantly, though, what Peter says is, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You did not merely lie to man, lie to man you more importantly lied to the Spirit. So that's that not but that is in order of significance. So is Jesus here talking exclusionary or is he talking order of significance? That's one I'll let you wrestle with. Um, Jesus says this, listen to me, everyone understand, nothing outside of a person can defile them by going in, but rather what comes out of a person. 
after he left the crowd, the disciples kind of weren't sure about this. So he says, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it does not go into their heart, but their stomach, then eliminated. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. So here Jesus is kind of using this and saying, really, what's the more important? You're worried about touching something and becoming unclean when really you should be worried about what? What's coming out from your heart? That's the significance. Romans 14, um, Paul says, I'm convinced, fully persuaded, Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, for them it is. Brother, sister is distressed because of what you eat. You are no longer acting in love. Do not let your eating destroy someone. It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles returning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them, abstain from food polluted from idols, from sexual immorality, from meat strangled from animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city. He says, what, if, if the Gentile really want to know all the purity codes, show up on the Sabbath, listen to the Torah. Otherwise, these are, these are the purity codes that I'm, I'm saying. Notice the, the blood is still there. Paul still felt that one very strongly. So we see this in the New Testament. We're, we're moving away from the purity codes that seem to be in the Torah, in Leviticus, and Paul giving kind of a, a more general purity code that is uh, more applicable for the Gentiles. And I'm not going to ask, are we that particular on our meat? But I'll let us see. Oh, is that not for us? That was for them. We'll go through that later. Maps for people. The Jews were a separate people, right? So now what has happened in the New Testament? The dividing wall has been broken down. So now there is one nation, one new body that Jesus has, is the head of. And the Jews in the, did not eat with the Gentiles. Why? Well, because they didn't know how the Gentiles were preparing the food. And again, the dietary uh, purity laws were very strong. That was one of the, the main identifying markers. So it's not that they were going, you know what, I, I just detest the Gentile. It was more, I, I can't take a chance on how you've prepared this food and maybe some unclean food and clean food have touched and that's now defiled the clean food, so I'm not going to eat with you. That's the, the struggle Peter had, right? And Peter sees the sheet come down and what's we got? Clean and unclean food. Peter goes, no, I haven't done that. Now, I don't think Jesus or God was really pointing out to him a new diet that he could have. I think he was really pointing out to say, Cornelius is not unclean. You can fellowship with Cornelius and not lose your Jewishness. Um, again, Jesus heals lepers and those. Uh, the demoniac in the tomb would have been unclean. Again, that would have made Jesus unclean. And, and here I kind of struggle. This, did it really make Jesus unclean? Or was Jesus' purity such that his purity overwhelmed the impurity of the individual? Uh, that's, that's a debate we could have as we look at that. New maps for time. Jesus says what? 
Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the, God is, uh, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Um, Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. Notice his point. He says, you know, Pharisees, you're, you're worried about this boundary here with the Sabbath. And if you had an ox, you would untie that ox and take it over to get a drink. What about this daughter of Abraham? Should she not be afforded the same courtesy that you would give an ox? That's not the boundary that God set on the Sabbath for that space of time. And what does it say? Again, we, we go back a few lessons. What was this? This was an honor challenge, right? Jesus' honor was being challenged in this. Who won the battle? His opponents were humiliated, shamed, and the people were delighted. So we, we, you know, as we read that now, we kind of think back to other lessons and we say, oh, there's an honor challenge. Oh, Jesus kind of won that one hands down. But he's saying what? Sabbath is not over man. That boundary is there, but it's not to be over man. Basically, he was saying there's really no constraint on doing good. You can do good anytime. That's okay. New maps for space. Again, we saw this. Um, a time is coming, now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are kind of the worshipers he seeks. So it's not Jerusalem, it's not Mount Gerizim. It's those worshipers who are wanting to worship uh, Jesus and God. In Peter's sermon, he says, the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. No, sorry, Stephen says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. So Moses said, what? Oh, this ground where I am now is holy ground. Don't you, still, you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Again, that's not personal. That's us. We are God's temple. The church is God's temple. Where does God reside now? With his church. Where, where we are. It is not in the temple of Jerusalem. God said, this is where I am. This is where my space is. Purity is now expressed more in terms of ethics rather than ritual. Paul writes this, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. You should learn to control your own body. In that way, it is holy and honorable. Uh, in this matter, no one should should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Kind of a preview of next week. The Lord will punish all of those. What? For God does not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So we see the, t the terminology of Leviticus. And we see what are we being called to? We're being called to live a holy life. Not a common, but a holy life. We are called to be clean. And live that holy life. And what is it? It's based on our ethics. Peter, since everything is to be destroyed, uh, what kind of people should you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. So we, again, speaking to how we are set apart. New maps for purification. So yes, I see baptism is moving us from a state of 
unclean to clean. It is moving us from a state of common to holy. That is the right that the New Testament has established to help us move there. Again in Hebrews, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with a pure water. Again, strong reference to baptism there and how it is what moves us into this realm of holy. So in summary, uh, purity boundaries establish conduct that is appropriate. But sometimes it was necessary to cross the line. Jesus crossed that line when he touched the leper, when he touched the demoniac, when he touched or allowed himself to be touched by the woman with the discharge. We must not so isolate ourselves that we no longer become a witness. Now we cannot compromise our mission to extend and tell God's love and healing. So again, we have some tension here. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.